To become a Christian, you must confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And the Bible promises that if you do this, you will be saved. Saved from your sin. And to be saved from your sin means not only that you will be rescued from the final penalty of sin, but it also means that you will be rescued from the present power of sin. To say that Jesus is Lord is the basic truth of the Christian life. But just because it's basic doesn't mean that we mature past it. Rather, I think maturity in the Christian life is to live every moment in light of that basic truth that Jesus is indeed our Lord. He's the Lord of me. That the Lord who saved me is indeed my life now. He's the Lord of my life. All of me belongs to Him. Scripture uses the language... (laughs) Scripture uses the language of union with Christ to describe the believer's relationship with their Lord. It says we're in Him. And if we're in Him, then all of our life is to be ordered and organized by Him. Today we're starting a two-week series called Our New Life in Christ. And the point will be simple, though the text will be profound. It's about the Christian life or sanctification. How do we change? I want us to make sense of what happened to us when we believed and confessed that Jesus is Lord. And how it carries over into our lives today. Sanctification. What is that? It's a big long word. I think it's the process of becoming more like Jesus as we trust in him as Lord. It's the way God puts us back together again. Restoring our humanity and our sanity into the people we were meant to be as his image bearers. I want us to think about how the beautiful gospel that we just sang about and hear about each week soaks into our very beings and spreads through the pores of our life. How does gospel theology translate into gospel living? How does our commitment to Jesus, our Lord, play out and apply to the ordinary, routine, and concrete ways we use our minds, energy, and bodies every day? Last summer, I did a short series on Romans chapter 5 called Confidence in Christ, and my series was intended to be pastoral in that it was addressing some problems people were having in our church It focused a lot on justification, that by faith in Christ, God declares us righteous. I had been hearing about people who were troubled by whether or not they were Christians. They were trying to make sense of their indwelling sin, the sin that remained in their lives and in their hearts, and the gospel that they believed. They were troubled by these things, and they were struggling with their assurance. So that series was intended to help them and hopefully help all of us and comfort us to gain confidence in our Lord who saved us and keeps us. But of course, that's not the only pastoral problem in our church, people struggling with assurance. In fact, there are many people in our church who say they're Christians and may even be members in our church, but their problem is very different. Their problem is that they aren't troubled at all by their sin. 
And that's a significant pastoral problem. They could care less about their sin and the gospel. They're so at home in their sin that they don't even blush at it anymore. Their thoughts, habits, and life are obsessed and dominated by sin. Yet they call themselves Christians. How are we to make sense of that? And this series is meant to shed light on that person and this experience. Is it possible to be a Christian as defined, not by you or me, but by the Bible, and to live in such a way that you are comfortable in habitual patterns of sin? Is it possible for Jesus to have saved you but not changed your life? Is it possible for Jesus to be your Savior but not your Lord? I want us to look at Romans chapter 6 together and gain insight for evaluating such questions. I think we'll see that the gospel that frees us indeed changes us and our lifestyles. We are going to see the relationship between our justification, that God declares us righteous in Christ, and our sanctification, that God continues to work in us by his spirit, making us more like Christ. Between our assurance and our perseverance. That's the flow from Romans 5 to 6. And the key to experiencing these realities is probably not a surprise to you. It's our union with Christ. We talk a lot about that around here. It's a very important theme in the New Testament. The Lord who saved us has claimed us. We are united to him and we're to live not for ourselves, but to live for him. We're connected to him. The same Lord Jesus who died and rose again to save me from the penalty of my sin is the same Lord Jesus who is at work in me by his spirit to save me from the power of my sin. We've had a new status change now by being justified by faith and that leads to a new lifestyle of sanctification. Such is the language of chapter 6 of Romans. So let's start by reading Romans 6, verses 1 to 11. It's on page 942 in the Bibles in front of you. I'm going to read this whole passage together uh, in one shot, and then we'll work through it piece by piece. But in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 11, it says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What a passage. Beautiful text. May it encourage us and change our lives as we consider it. 
Now listen to how Doug Moo sums up this passage in Romans um, 6. He says, Paul makes clear that the new status enjoyed by the believer, justification, brings with it a new influence in power that both has led and must lead to a new way of life, sanctification. This must is very important. For as decisive and final as is this transfer into a new realm, it would be a misinterpretation of Paul to think that the believer is thereby removed from all contact or influence with the old realm of sin. While belonging to a new realm, believers bring with them into it many of the impulses, habits, and tendencies of the old life, a constant threat to putting into actual practice the realities of our new realm status. That's a lot of words. We're going to unpack this as we work through the passage. But to be clear, Paul is not saying, nor I don't, don't think the scripture is saying, that believers are sinless or perfect. But we are made new when we believe. Though we are tempted to sin daily, and we do sin daily, we don't need to sin daily if we're in Christ. We don't live under the dictatorship and the oppression of sin anymore. We have the resources in Christ to actually say no to sin now. We can live in true freedom, and true freedom for the Christian, as we'll see, isn't living disconnected from God in an independent, autonomous life, but it's living connected to Him under His Lordship. That's true freedom. Biblical freedom isn't the picture of a transfer from slavery to total independence. But it's a transfer from serving sin to serving the Lord. To be enslaved to sin, to be enslaved to God and to righteousness. As Romans 6 will say. Much like Israel in Exodus was rescued from serving as slaves under the rule of evil Pharaoh. In order to serve the Lord. Right? We who are in Christ were set free from sin in order to serve Christ. That is to live under his lordship, worshiping, obeying, loving him. To live under his lordship means to live under his control, his presence, and his authority. Remember what Jesus said in John 8. These words baffle me. It says this, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We love those words, right? But then he says, later on, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So sin is sticky, and it's enslaving by nature. It grips us and pulls us down, doesn't it? It's an invisible, enslaving power, a ruling master that binds those who belong to it. It makes demands of us that we willingly obey, right? But now, through faith in the risen Christ, He is our ruling master. We no longer need to obey the voice of sin, Christian. By faith in Jesus, we've come out from under the oppression of sin, and we belong to Him now. I was purchased by the blood of Christ, and since He has made me His own, I am to live for Him now. And how will I do that? How will you do that? How shall we live if Jesus has saved us to live for him? That's where we're going today. 
Okay? So in Romans 6, we're going to see this. True believers have received new life and been released from the, the enslaving power of sin in Christ the Lord. But before we dig into this, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the good news that has come to our ears and that reminds us that we're no longer slaves to sin because we're in Jesus Christ. I pray that this liberating truth would liberate people today. If there are people here who are not yet in Christ, that they would come to him. And if there are those who are living in sin, Lord, that this would be a time to return to you and repent and be refreshed by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's try to remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. In that chapter, Paul explains that humanity's... Now, I just needed to tell you, there's going to be a lot of theology in this uh, uh, sermon, okay? There's a lot of theology in Romans, and as you'll see, theology is for living. So, gospel living is meant to be grounded in gospel theology. So, be encouraged by what you hear here, but we're just going to do a little bit of an overview of Romans 5. In that chapter, Paul explains in deep and profound ways that humanity's standing and identity and even destiny is determined by, uh, by people either being in Adam or in Christ. Okay, Maybe you remember this from the summer. We were all born in Adam by nature. And through Adam we deserve death and condemnation. But our identity in Adam and our former lives in the graveyard of sin, as it were, has been overturned through our union with the resurrected Jesus. So though sin is present in a Christian's life, it no longer has the same control it once did, right? Is this your experience? Through faith in Christ, we're not only transferred from Adam into Christ, a new identity now. Great. We're also transferred from living under the power and lordship of sin to live under the power and lordship of Jesus. This is good news. I love what Sinclair Ferguson says about it. He says, In the immediate preceding section in Romans, Paul had set our lives in a much bigger context. By nature, we were in Adam, but now we are in Christ. In Adam, we were under the dominion of sin and death. In Christ, we are in the dominion of grace and life. Sin once reigned, but now grace reigns. The old man in view here is therefore not simply my former self, but the person I was in Adam and not simply in myself. When I was united to Jesus Christ, I was transferred from Adam land to Christ land, from the Adam family to the Christ family. By God's grace, my past was forgiven But there is more to it than that. I died out of an entire world order, the Adamic order, and was thus delivered from a fallen and condemned race under sin's reign through union with Christ who died to sin and was raised to new life. So all to say, when you believed in Jesus Christ, something radical happened to you. A massive transfer took place. Not only did you come into Christ, but you came out from under the power and the enslaving power of sin into new life under Christ. 
We're so tempted to think that when we believed, something small took place. Not true. When you believed, you came into Christ, and anyone who is in Christ is a new creature. Now, with this context in mind, the first thing we see is that true believers have been given new life in Christ. Verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Answer, verse 2, by no means. Okay, so Paul is employing a question-answer style of teaching here, uh, and he does so at many points in Romans. It's possible that the questions he anticipates here uh, from the readers of the letter are questions he's heard from others as he's preached the gospel before. His question in verse 1 is this, Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? The answer is a resounding no. But the question serves as a feeler for how people are grasping or not grasping the gospel. Rhetorical device that that gives an opportunity for feedback. And here's the thing. If we properly understand the message of God's grace in Christ, we will be led not to live a life of sin, but to live a life of fruitful, righteous living. A lifestyle that is very much like Christ, right? Not a lifestyle of sin. In other words, if we've concluded that, as Paul said in Romans 5, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. If we've concluded from that, that that means we should go on and sin more, we've misinterpreted the gospel of grace. We've misinterpreted scripture. Grace isn't an impersonal power that enables us to continue living under the power of sin and escape the consequences of it. No, no. Grace is the personal power of the presence of our God who empowers us to be holy as he is holy. It is his favor being lavished on us to save and sanctify us from our sin. The Lord who saves us sanctifies us, right? So grace is not powerless or ineffective. In fact, the power of grace, as we'll see, conquers the power of sin in me. The power of grace conquers the power of sin in me. As William Edgar says, we are so deeply fallen that only Christ can plumb the depths of our beings and unleash his sanctifying power. As we'll see in this chapter, it is the very reign of God's grace in my life that provides the only remedy to beat the reign of sin in my life. So grace is not a weak topic for the Christian. How can we, verse 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul continues, By telling us that if we've become Christians, this means we've died to sin. The idea of death and life here refers to two different realms or dominions. We've already been going at this a bit. If you have died, you are no longer alive, right? Yeah. You no longer live in the realm of life or the the realm of the living. We get that. So those of us who have put our faith in Christ have died to sin in the sense that we no longer live in the realm where sin is in control. We're out of that realm now into a new realm. Though we will indeed have temptations to sin, as Doug Moo already said, it's a threat, a constant threat to the Christian. 
and to trip them up and to continue in that way. But this is not the way of a Christian. Sin remains in us, but it no longer reigns over us. We've been transferred out of it through our union with Christ and his death and resurrection. As Doug Moo says, um, we Christians, Paul affirms, have died to sin, verse 2. We have been taken from under its tyranny in a transfer so radical and decisive that the language of death and new life can be used of it. Okay, so we've had a change of identity and belonging. We no longer belong to Adam, and we no longer belong under the power of sin. Praise God. So how do we make sense of these verses as it relates to our sanctification? For the last week that we uh, look back at the last week of our lives, and we consider the way we battled and beat at times, or lost in our battle with sin, how can this shed light on our experience? Listen carefully again to Doug Moo, um, who has written a very, very long and good uh, technical commentary on Romans. So that's probably why I'm going to be referring to him a lot, but he's got a lot of insight here. So Doug Moo says this to, to, to answer the question, what about living in sin? How do we make sense of this? He says, living in sin is best taken as describing a lifestyle of sin, a habitual practice of sin such that one's life could be said to be characterized by that sin rather than by the righteousness God requires. A lifestyle that is characterized by sin. Such habitual sin, remaining in sin, verse 1, living in sin, verse 2, is not possible as a constant situation for the one who has truly experienced the transfer out from under the domain or tyranny of sin. Sin's power is broken for the believer, and this must be evident in practice. Yet the nature of Christian existence is such that the believer can, at times, live in a way that is inconsistent with the reality of what God has made him in Christ. It is not sin, but the believer who has died, and sin, as Wesley puts it, remains even though it does not reign. Therefore, while living in sin is incompatible with Christian existence and impossible for the Christian as a constant condition, it remains a real threat. It is this threat that Paul warns us about in verse 2. Catch the nuances here, right? We cannot live in sin if we're Christians. We cannot live in sin as we once did. Because our relationship with Christ has broken and changed our relationship with sin in that way. Now, we're going to think for ourselves about ourselves for a moment. We look at our lives. Who are we living for? Are we controlled and led by our impulses to sin all day, every day? What are we most passionate about when we're alone? Sin or Jesus? Who are we living for? How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Let's continue by looking at verses 3 to 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
So as we've already seen, union with Christ is the key to understanding these verses. And baptism is a picture of our union with him. Paul isn't saying that baptism automatically destroys the power of sin. He's saying that baptism is an outward sign that we've been converted, that our hearts changed inwardly. It's an act, sorry, it's an after-the-fact statement that we've repented of our sin and believed the gospel. Right? That's, that's what we're doing when we're talking uh, to people, telling, showing them our baptism. It's an immersion into water that symbolizes being immersed and identified with Jesus. And in a mysteriously beautiful way, when we go down into the water in baptism, it's a symbol that we were buried with Christ. And when we emerge out of the water, it's a symbol that we've been raised with Jesus to newness of life. Right, The pattern of our baptism and our salvation follows the pattern of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what is the point of this? Well, as verse 4 says, it's in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Here seems to be the point of our union with Christ and our baptism to live for the glory of God and to live a new way of life that is patterned after the resurrection life of Christ. In a sense, this is what the whole passage is all about. Living under the power of the resurrected Lord. As Mu says again, to be in Christ means then to belong to Christ as our representative so that the decisions applied to him apply to us. So we will follow suit through death, in resurrection life. That's the pattern. So let me ask you, have you been united to Christ by faith? Have you trusted in him to save you? Are you living under the lordship of Christ, walking in the newness of life? Have you been baptized to declare that you believe that Jesus is Lord and his death and resurrection is your very salvation? If you call on him as Lord to save you, are you still calling on him to sanctify you? The next thing we see in this text is that true believers have been set free from sin in Christ. Verse 5 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Here we see that these verses are expanding our understanding of union with Christ from different angles and dimension and dimensions. And though it might sound like they're speaking in circles, I think we're getting deeper into what it means to be a Christian. Our union with Christ in his death means that we've been set free from sin and been given new life through his resurrection. This means that we who follow Jesus will follow the pattern of his physical body through death into resurrection life. We have been united to his death and resurrection, and I'm lost for words to quite, go, to, to quite know how to explain this. What does it mean? I'm, I'm starting to learn. But we know that this means that we will experience a similar resurrection body and resurrection experience that Jesus had, right? I get this from this text and also from Philippians 3, where it says, Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. 
So there's more to come. And the best is yet to come for believers. We will be transformed. Our lowly body will be transformed to be like his glorious resurrection body. Wow. All right, let's continue as we look at verses 6 and 7, which say, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now things are getting very exciting as this passage progresses, because it's like Paul is telling us what happened to all believers in some extremely powerful theological words put together when they were converted. What happened to you when you were converted? What happened? Well, your old self was crucified with Christ. And what does this mean? We know that even Christians living under the lordship of Christ still sin, of course. But what does it mean? It doesn't mean that all of our sinful habits and impulses have disappeared. Um, But it does mean something has happened when we died and were crucified with Christ. So what happened? John Stott says, What was crucified with Christ was not a part of me called my old nature, but the whole of me as I was before I was converted. So a change has taken place at the root of who we were before Christ in Adam. Listen to how Tom Schreiner explains this verse. He says, the power of sin has been broken in those who believe. For their old self, literally their old man, meaning who they were in Adam, was crucified and put to death with Christ. They were born into the world as sinners, with the result that their bodies were ruled by sin. Sin's rule, however, was broken when Christians died with Christ, and therefore they are no longer enslaved to sin. Paul does not argue that Christians do not sin at all, a view called sinless perfection. Instead, the tyranny, domination, and rule of sin have been defeated for them. This means that the normal pattern of life for Christians should be progressive growth in sanctification, resulting in ever greater maturity and conformity to God's law in thought and action. Transformation. And Paul says to the To believers and about believers, we know that our old self was crucified with him. Do you know this to be true of you? Is this your experience? How would you know? Well, if you've been converted, you've been crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. What does that mean? We were converted not just to enjoy forgiveness, but to live our lives in a body that is not dominated by sin's impulses, but dominated by a desire for holiness. We live in the body in a whole new way of life now. Now we see that living in the light, in obedience to our Lord, is not missing out on the good life. It is the good life. So the battle for your sanctification and my sanctification is a battle for the basics. Jesus is Lord of me now. It's a battle for how I use my body, either for the Lord or for sin. So let's ask ourselves, are we using our bodies to honor the Lord? Sin is a real lurking threat for you, Christian, and for me. Don't get cozy with it. Put it down. Don't play with it. 
You've been set free from sin and sinning. You're not a slave to him anymore. So live accordingly. Let's continue as we look at verses 8 and 9. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So these precious verses reinforce what we've already seen, and they expand our understanding. In verse 9, we see that word dominion appear. It's only found twice in the book of Romans. Once here, uh, referring to Christ in verse 9, and the second time is in verse 14, referring to Christians. Now, we've seen that the idea of dominion uh, has the connotation of realm, rule, or reign, right? And it might remind you of Genesis 1. I'm going to read for you uh, from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, and listen to these uh, phrases, dominion. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God made mankind in his image in order that mankind would have dominion over the earth, right? Humans were and are to rule and control the earth as God's representatives, as his image bearers. Mankind has a dignified position in creation to use their energy and strength to conquer and rule the powerful things in creation. We're to bring powerful, chaotic things, like even like wild animals under our control. We're to subject them, control, conquer them. But since the fall, this task has gotten more complicated, hasn't it? Many things are out of control, not just wild animals. And the most hideous power, out of control thing, we must bring under our control is not a wild animal, but sin, right? And sin is a dark power that we must conquer. Now remember what God says to Cain in Genesis 4. He says sin is crouching at the door, like, like Using imagery of, of animal, wild animals, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Okay, what does this have to do with Romans chapter 6, right? Long rabbit trail. What does this have to do with Romans 6? So much. Here's the point. Sin wants to have us. It's still trying to crouch and, and, and trying to get us under control. It's still trying to rule over us, to enslave and rule and master us. But we believers must exercise dominion over it. We must control sin. Listen to the, ex, uh, the echoes of this theme in Romans 6 verses 11 to 14. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body 
to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now listen close. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. So this task of conquering sin was impossible in Adam. Right? We were born enslaved to sin. But in Christ, it is the way of life. By faith in Christ, filled with his spirit, we believers are to exercise rule over sin. Not to let sin rule over us. We can only live this way, conquering the power of sin, if we are united to Jesus, living under his lordship. There are no resources for such a task outside of him. But through the power of the gospel, we shall conquer even the power of sin in our life and in our hearts. By virtue of our union with Christ, God is remaking us into the image of his Son. And now as we live under the lordship and dominion of Christ, we are to exercise dominion over sin by conquering sin in our hearts and lives. As death no longer rules or has dominion over the risen Christ, Romans 6.14 says, Sin will have no dominion over you who are in Christ. Dear friends, do you know what this means? This is extremely, extremely helpful. It means that I'm not helpless or powerless in my sanctification. It means that I can change by the Spirit of God. It means that by the Spirit, I can break the habits of sin in my life, even if they're decades old. I can take sin by the scruff of the neck and say, in the name of Jesus, I don't belong to you anymore. I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ now. And as I do, God restores my humanity and my sanity. He makes me into the person he designed me to be as his image bearer having dominion even over the sin that goes wild. Sin has warped and perverted and crippled me in many ways. That's a part of my story. It's a part of your story. But Jesus is making me over. He's changed my story. It ends with hope. He's making me new. He's making you new. So does this cause us to say, praise the Lord? I hope so. Does this cause us to live differently? I hope so. It's supposed to. Now let's look at verses 10 through 11, which says, For the death, referring to Jesus, for the death he died to sin, sorry, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, as we've seen in this passage, because of our union with Christ, his pattern of life is meant to shape our pattern of life. And here we see that since Christ died to sin and lives to God, we are to live in the same way. Dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And Tom Schreiner explains what it means to be dead to sin here. He says, dead to sin means dead to the pervasive love for and ruling power of sin. Christians must realize that the mastery of sin has been broken in their lives. And I think one of the ways we can test whether or not 
uh, we've been saved by grace and are living under the lordship of Christ would be to ask ourselves these simple questions. Do I love my sin? Do I love it like I used to love it? Does it disturb my peace when I binge on sin? Do I hate my sin? For Christians, we must recognize that our relationship with sin has changed. And we must also take action and consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. We must practice what we believe by kicking the habits of sin by the power of Christ. We must not think our growth in godliness is something that is passive. It'll just happen by osmosis. I go to church, I'll grow in godliness. We must take initiative and bring all our polluted ways into the light. Living under the lordship of Christ requires constantly repenting and believing in Christ the Lord. Receiving new mercies again from him as we live in a world and a body contaminated by sin and death. Christian, you need to hear this. You aren't at sin's beck and call like you once were. You aren't to obey the voice of sin like you once did. You aren't a slave to sin anymore. You belong to Jesus now. So live accordingly. All right, in closing, these verses have laid the foundation for what it means to be united to Christ and to live under his lordship. When you came to Christ, you became a new creation and received a new life. It started when you believed, but it continues as you live the rest of your life. Next week, we're going to dig into the commands of this text. But at this point, we can already see that knowledge and faith in Christ as Lord is to lead us to live for Christ as Lord. So, the question for all of us now is this. Are we living for him? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that Jesus has absolutely altered our whole course of life by the grace that we see in the resurrection and death of Christ. We thank you that it is a radical change. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to convict us of the ways in which we are not living in step with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.